live and exclusive. This is Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Joining myself, Gary, is... There's two people. You can't do oh, that trick, no, can no, you? No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm introducing you first, and then the big reveal, the big surprise, is that we've got a third person as well. This would help if we could all see each other, but we can't, so you can't do that kind of stagecraft. I am Mr. Tilteraisa. Stagecraft. I'm not David Copperfield. Either of them. And also joining us this time round... It's Tyler. It is Tyler. Adams, who is also known as Lap's Cat and who joined us at Christmas time for our lovely peep show party, which was going so well until one person then spoiled the whole thing by telling Dropped us truth right at the bomb. end. Yeah, I truth bomb. Pipe bomb. Yeah, uh-huh. you can't handle the truth. You know what kind of people always talk about how they tell the truth? I have finished is- watching Peep Show. I have watched it up to the end now. I, because I didn't have to watch it, it suddenly became a lot easier to watch. I've also watched Twice Nightly after being so nasty about the Baron Knights at Christmas, and they have their moments. You said just before we started that you, you were warming to Peep Show, and you, you actually mentioned a few pieces. Well, yes, the greatest moment in Peep Show is the non-blinking face. Shall we go through? The deranged look, yes. Let us hope that maybe there'll be like a big screen version of Peep Show or something like that. We are off to the cinematics today. Well, Tyler, do you you want to explain what it is that we're talking about today? We're looking at three pieces of film, which in themselves aren't really linked, other than that they share three largely similar performances by the actor, the late, great David Lodge. And these are three films in which he appears as a policeman. He actually appeared in about... 15, 16 films in his career in which he played some form of policeman. So this is the Dave Lodge special. This is the Sergeant Brown trilogy. I think maybe we should try and convince ourselves that he is the same character throughout because he is a sergeant throughout all three. He does move from force to force. He obviously has a couple of transfers. He becomes more downtrodden though, doesn't he? He becomes more world-weary. We can try and pinpoint exactly when that happened, what it was that caused that. Till you went through a little period of watching films on Netflix in which it seemed that every single British film ever made featured Frank Thornton. Yes. And this is along similar <laughs> lines. It's like if you need a policeman in a film from, say, 1950 through to 1980, Dave Lodge is your man. He was the police equivalent of William Hartnell. We need a sergeant. Police, Lodge, Army, Hartnell. That's how they did it. As he went through his career, though, he started to do quite a few films in which he was playing more heavy type characters, you know, at odds with the law, uh, particularly obviously two-way stretch, but uh, subsequent films, he was appearing as a crook. But yeah, I think he's probably best known for his policeman roles. Well, let's jump straight in. Oh, look, he's an odd man out. Fantastic. Damn it, if I'd <laughs> realised that, we would have watched that as well. Right, maybe whilst we're speaking, I'll quickly watch odd man out and find out who he is in that. Well, we'll start in a sort of linear fashion, shall we? We'll start at the start. Till, do you want to say a little bit about what this is? 1956. It's a return to the type of film I hope we're going to keep returning to. Black and white 1950s British B-movie. I think it's a B-movie. It's got that slightly shop-worn quality. It's called The Intimate Stranger, known in the US as Finger of Guilt. It has Richard Basehart being the token American. It's a pattern that we kept coming across in British B-movies when we did some last year. And Richard Basehart has a very interesting delivery. They didn't know they were kicking me upstairs. That's one of his lines. <laughs> so this was a nice little curiosity. And as much as when we were watching this at first, we were sort of thinking, 
is this actually going to leave us hanging? Is this going to have a proper resolution? Or is it going to take the easy way out? And to its credit, it didn't. It was actually proper structure, beginning, middle, end, in that order. I thought it was quite a, I won't say ingenious plot, but it was quite an interesting plot. And I can see them making a remake, obviously with the necessary changes, but I thought it wasn't too bad a plot. So we've got Richard Basehart, and he plays Reginald Bosenkey. And <laughs> he, well, first of all, he goes to the doctor's office and he says, oh, I've come over all faint and what have you. And by the way, doctor, is it possible that I've got another version of me, either actually or not, but is doing other things that I don't know about? So it's an intriguing little sort of setup. It actually starts about two thirds of the way through the film. And then we've got the scene setting where basically he's, yeah, he's this big movie executive. Tilt and I have been talking a little bit off air recently about deconstructionist larks and what have you in texts. And this is a bit of an oddity because it's a film and it's a B film at that and it's talking about the kind of films that are popular these days and how small budget films don't really have any place anymore. Not exactly what you expect from the very film that effectively they're describing. I think it's cheaping out a bit though. It means you can shoot something in an office that looks like an office means you can have a set piece at the end where there is a set that is nothing to do with anything, but it's okay because it's a film set. And then you can have an adventure sequence with bare studio walls. It's possibly the last idea. It's like when you've really run out of ideas at the film studio, it's like, let's just do a movie set in a film studio and then we can just take the cameras outside and it doesn't matter. <laughs> and then some of the most authentic Newcastle accents on the location work that they were doing. Was that filmed in Newcastle, or do you think it was just filmed down the road from Shepparton? It had the right kind of look, but yes, I very much doubt they splashed out on <laughs> filming all the way up there. It was weird. It didn't have that B-movie pacing, though, did it? It didn't have that credits over smack right in the face with the plot, even though it had the film noir voiceover thing that could have thrown a lot of information. It did seem to drift around a bit. I didn't enjoy it anywhere near as much as the three B movies we watched last year. I mean, it was a good film. I mean, it wasn't a great film, but it was a good film. But there were some very sort of plodding moments, as you'd expect, I guess. And some clunky bits of dialogue, like there's the thing about his ex-wife is going to be in a movie and then she isn't. I suppose the question in the audience is might a less savvy... I don't mean that to say anything bad about 1950 cinema audiences. They were less saturated with behind-the-scenes knowledge so i can imagine at one point they're thinking well why doesn't she just walk out and she has to sit in the middle of a conversation yeah so i can't be sued to kingdom come for breaking my contract <laughs> just that are we on the are we on the same page everybody that's why i haven't just walked out and there was the dinner scene when reggie and his wife are having dinner and they're making such a no pun intended such a meal of eating the soup did you notice them eating the soup Every sort of mouthful of soup that did make it a big show of getting the napkin and, you know, wiping their mouths and then standing up and walking around the table and then sitting down again and eating some more soup and then wiping their mouths. And it was That's just... interesting. You'd think this was mid at the height of the big quarter thing where action like that was worthwhile because you might have heard me use the phrase pound a foot merchants, which is a pound for a foot of film. So do something that will take time. We're contracted to sell this many feet of film, and it doesn't matter if it's exposition or just 
stuff. Just cannot believe thing. the car has broken down here in the middle of nowhere. Oh, blimey, I think we're here for the night. <laughs> the best thing, I think, though, was... Apologies for if I get his surname wrong. Roger Livesey? I, I mean, I know... Oh, yes. I, I've always read the name. I've never actually heard the name out loud, so I'm not sure. I wasn't sure if I was pronouncing the surname correctly, but Roger Livesey's fantastic. And I, I, we don't want to race ahead, but towards the ending when we think we know what's happened and then it turns out that it wasn't him that was responsible. I was kind of glad because I really like that character. <laughs> he, he just a really nice, avuncular character. Um, and I'm, I'm glad it, it turned out like it did. I thought that was cheap, though. There was really only one conclusion this was heading to. So the plot is Richard Bessart, he's a movie executive, he's a director, he's a former actor, I think. Some of it's getting faint in my memory already. He is receiving letters from a woman who's saying, why have you forgotten about me? Remember that time we spent together? And initially he dismisses them, but then he's beginning to find more and more evidence that he did keep going up to Newcastle to have assignations with this woman. But I think quite early on, I figured what was happening. And it felt like the Roger Livesey bit was just a faint. Just say, ah, no, no, you see, it's not what you expect. Okay, okay, it's what you expected. Sorry, just threw Roger Livesey away to maybe make you forget the conclusion you'd already reached. Well, when you say that you felt that you knew what was going on at a certain point, well, I sort of felt I knew what was going on, but my expectation was rather different from yours. I was just waiting for Richard Basehart to eventually say, probably in the last 30 seconds of the film, yeah, all right, there's a fair cop, I did it, yeah, hands up. But he didn't, and that was a huge disappointment. So where does David Lodge come into all this? Well, Richard Basehart and his wife, played by Constance Cummings, they go up to Newcastle to check this woman who is supposedly having this hot, steamy affair with his character and... Some of the evidence seems to check out, and as part of all this, they go to the police, and the station is staffed by Desk Sergeant David Lodge, who has had a lot of cocoa or a couple of Valium. He's in slow motion. <laughs> it's almost a bit like how, you know, British television film series tend to be shot at 25 frames per second? It felt like they shot it at 25 frames per second, and we were watching it at 24. <laughs> It wasn't even his speech, it was his movements, it was the way he, he sort of raised himself from his chair and walked around to the front of the desk. He was deliberate, slow, guarded, wooden, basically. Is this the one where his character is named? Yes, Brown. he has got his name. He's, he's named Police Sergeant Brown. Yes, okay, good, I have a theory about that. This is directed by Joseph Losey, who I know is a name that I have heard and don't hear as much anymore. I can't do a great deal of research Shall I tell you why him? you've heard of him? And this is not coming off the top of my head. I've got it in front of me just now. I'm quoting this from IMDb. Joseph Losey was the director of this film, but the name that was used on the film was Alex C. Snowden because Joseph Losey was at that moment blacklisted. No, Alex C. Snowden is actually a co-director. Joseph Losey was working under the name Joseph Walton. Is some of his work under the name Joseph Walton on this film and also Alex C. Snowden? Well, I don't... It's a whole confusion a of names. We've got, a, we've got a review here. Finger of Guilt was directed by Joseph Losey and written by Howard Koch under a pseudonym. Both he and Losey were called to testify during the Red Scare and refused. The IMDb gives it two director's credits. But no, Joseph Losey, I mean, he did a remake of M. Uh, I know he did that Modesty Blaze movie that actually that goes on the list of something when, when spy films go a bit overboard. Is that the one with the soundtrack by John Danikworth? 
Yes. Oh, lovely. And it's it's very, oh my God, it's the 60s and we're all just totally postmodern. <laughs> and I believe the guy who created Modesty Blaze actually cried when he saw the film. Joseph Lossi, he's just a name. I, I think I should know him as one of the great directors and I don't. And there's probably people shouting at us. Apparently he did some work with Dirk Bogart. Well, like Modesty Blaze. Tyler, were you going to shout at us about Joseph Lossi? No, no, I was just saying about the um, the author of Modesty Blaze crying, just as Agatha Christie, I'm sure, would have done likewise. Oh, <laughs> get thee to Pebble Mill. What a smooth link. <laughs> right, we're not saying anything else about Joseph Lossi. We have now moved on. Goodbye, Joseph Lossi. Hello, Frank Tashlin. Squiddy helped me out on this. He pointed me in the direction of a documentary about Frank Tashlin's life, but principally focused on his work at Warner Brothers Cartoons. And he's an interesting figure because very, very gag-based, which was Warner's defining characteristic. People say about Warner being more subversive, but really just what it was was that Disney and when Harmon and Icing had moved from Warner to MGM, everybody else was interested in character pieces with some humour, and Warner was interested in gags, precursors to stuff like Zucker Abraham Zucker. How many jokes can you cram in this? And Frank Tashlin was definitely part of that. Also very strong artistic style. A lot of Art Deco feel. His characters look different, but he was pushing and pushing to be a live-action filmmaker. He went via being a gag man. I know he worked for the Marx Brothers. There's a Marx Brothers book that mentions when he was at Warner, all the other cartoonists would laugh at him because he'd go and see live-action films and write down all the jokes. He's going to be most famous for his work with Jerry Lewis, yes? <clears throat> Not an expert on Jerry Lewis, but... Uh... Okay, Girl Can't Help It. Is that what Frank Tashlin's most famous for? Have you heard of him before I said the name? I've heard of Girl Can't Help It. I've heard of The Nutty Professor. Did he do that? No, I think that's Lewis in his auteur phase. What I mean is everything I hear about Frank Tashlin really comes across in our next film, The Alphabet Murders. It's curiously stylish. It's very joke-heavy. I'd seen bits of it before, and I'd remembered it being pretty terrible. And then when I sat down with it from beginning to end, yeah, you don't even have to be a Poirot purist, I think, to find certain parts of the portrayal objectionable. But as a film, if Poirot was an original character this film, I think it would... Yeah, but wasn't his Poirot just aping Clouseau? Exactly, yes. I definitely think that was the plan. He says things like, um, you were ah, burring, er, you know, that real sort of strung out, uh, strangulated comedy French accent, or Belgian, I guess, this in this case. two years after the success of The Pink Panther, and then we've had a sequel. Yeah, uh, Shot in the Dark. Well. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In which Dave Lodge appeared. Oh, exactly. Of course, funnily enough, you're quite familiar with David Lodge's association, mainly with Spike Milligan, but also he's got associations with Peter Sellers, and the first time you were ever aware of Dave Lodge, it was in an unusual situation, was it not? As in, he was uh, what you might call a voice artist. <laughs> yeah, well, I was very big fan of The Goon Show. I grew up in New Zealand. It was on the radio every week. They repeated it every week, and I discovered it by accident when I was an early, early teenager. I hadn't really been aware of much of, of I knew Spike Milligan, didn't really know much about Peter Sellers, and absorbed myself, you know, recorded them, absorbed myself, and you know, grabbed everything I could find about The Goon Show, which in the days before internet, it was very difficult. You just had to rely on books and and there was a, a goon show preservation society that had a newsletter monthly newsletter which had lots of sort of trivia 
and stuff like that that I just poured over. And one thing I did notice that during the mid-period, I suppose, series six, seven, eight of The Goon Show, very often there'd be episodes where there'd be a member of the audience, a, ve- a very distinctive man in the audience laughing, very loud, raucous kind of laugh. And I found out through, I guess it must have been one of the, the fanzines or something, that it was Dave Lodge, who was, if not his best friend, one of Peter Sellers' best friends, who would often go to the recordings. And he was not discreet when it came to laughter. It was through me sort of reading that that I uh, I sort of looked into David Lodge and people like Graham Stark as well, who I guess you could say was part of the, the Sellers' repertory company. They tended to follow Sellers around, <laughs> cameos in many of his films. Obviously, I'd seen Dave Lodge, I guess, in the Carry On films or whatever, you know, before The Goon Show. But my first indication as to who he was was actually through hearing him laughing. And it was like some old rummy had wandered in off the street <laughs> and, and into the Camden Theatre and just basically in hysterics, cackling away. So uh, that was my first real introduction to Dave Lodge. And all my knowledge subsequently of Dave Lodge tended to be based on when he popped up in Sellers films. And then, of course, the Q series. Yes, he's a regular on Q, isn't he? Yeah. Before we get to the alphabet murders in earnest, then I have to ask the big question. Why isn't David Lodge in Superman 3? Graham Stark's in it. John Bluthall's in it. Bob Todd's in it. (laughs) What had he done? (laughs) That Richard Lester didn't. Or maybe he's on the cutting room floor. Well, he was in. He was in Lester's first. Well, I say his first film. He was in the running, jumping, and standing still film. Dave Lodge. So they obviously had history together. Actually, Gary, you got excited because you found somewhere out there there is a long version of Superman Three <laughs> taped off Yorkshire Television being exchanged in certain circles. Maybe if we get hold of that, we might find a cut out David Lodge scene that didn't make it to the cinemas. <laughs> Or maybe just John Comer style cut out David Lodge. (laughs) (laughs) He wanted to be in it, he was busy, but they found a way. Like Jules Holland in that squeeze video. Just before we go on, just because we mentioned Graham Stark, we won't mention too much about Graham Stark, but I have said previously that I have what I think is a false memory because there's no mention or or indication of him on IMDb that he was in an episode of the US um, 80s comedy series Sledgehammer. And... I think, Gary, you said you were going to try and look into it. Did you manage to find My anything? My research, unfortunately, drew a blank. And yeah, I was disappointed about this. I was hoping that it was going to be maybe something that would turn up on like a forum or something like that. But no, I think really the only way is we were talking off air before we began a recording. We were talking about how Warsaw Gummidge definitely uses a particular word, which I won't repeat on this clean podcast. But he definitely does say it. And he doesn't say cow shed, he says something else. And it might just be that, like, I've got to watch every single Warsaw Gummage to see where this turns up. We might just have to watch every Sledgehammer to find this. But, you know, if it's going to be done, it's going to be done. I mean, the fella who was... Oh, you won't watch every episode of Watching. That's different. For the sitcom club. There's 57 <laughs> of those, for goodness sake. No, the fella who played Fred Savage's father in The Wonder Years, he's in Sledgehammer, because I saw him in it once. It's got nothing to do with anything. But I think Vincent Price was in it, wasn't he? I was he? Remember. I think he was, yeah. Oh, tell you who was in Warsaw Well, while these two are talking, I'm going to talk about the alphabet no, murders just, because just... that's actually what we're meant to be talking about right. at the moment. Okay, so hang on. Right, right, okay. The Alphabet Murders is a 1965 film directed by Frank Tashlin and starring Tony Randall as Hercule Poirot. But he doesn't say Hercule Poirot, he says Poirot. He pronounces it in a way that puts the emphasis on the first syllable in a way which French names don't that really, really bugs me. The alphabet murders, right at the beginning, 
Tony Randolph sort of breaking the fourth wall when he comes strolling out of the, the studio soundstage and introduces himself pre-credits. Now, is that because he wants to show the audience that he actually has a full head of hair? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, uh, that was Bodenwood Studios Stage 4, IMDb tells us. It's a very curious way of starting a film, and I like it. I think more movies need to begin with, that's me, playing. Originally, uh, the part was intended for Zero Mostel. Yeah, I can see that. Which explains some of the stuff in the trailers about how his suit's not fitting and he should start smoking again to lose weight. That opening would never work with David Suchet each and every week, would it? It's worth trying. <laughs> Just one last time, David. Get back in to the old gear and we'll shoot new introductions for every Poirot. <laughs> David Suchet points to his name. That's me. I mean, he's going to pronounce it correctly. He's going to say Poirot. This is part of a certain type of movie, the, the all-star Euro spectacular. <laughs> it's not quite. It's a little bit more British. And, of course, our European characters being played by an American actor. As you said, Tyler... It's post-Clouseau. And Gary, when we were watching this, you did raise an interesting question. Why is it in black and white? Yeah, for 1965, I thought it was a bit late. Budget? It could be. Yes, it could be. Would have been that much cheaper by 65, though. I mean, I understand there's a Rock Hudson film called Seconds, which is generally believed to be not necessarily the last, but one of the last you can point to big studio black and white films, and that's 1966. I watched um, In Cold Blood, which was 66, and that was black and white. And I, and Who I, made that? Um, couldn't tell you, but it was an American film. It kind of ties in with, I think, maybe the size of the studio. For the bigger studios, it wasn't going to be that much cheaper. Maybe it's an artistic thing, because this does have a really interesting look, and Frank Tashlin had a very strong artistic sense, and some of this is quite weird. There's some very stark-looking scenes. The camera angles, very interesting camera angles. There's some scenes, but a lot of shots behind screens. Notice that. A lot of, I think, when Morris Denham's pointing at a screen and uh, and you see it from behind and you see his silhouette. You've got the shots in the sauna where you've got their <laughs> mouths in the mirror. Yeah, that was quite interesting. I quite like that. Violent thunderstorms, very violent thunderstorms for Britain. When he went to see the psychiatrist, all very sort of almost gothic. So it may have been down to... A stylistic thing, I don't know. But there's a number of different styles. Like, there is that high gothic film noir thing, but then some of it looks like he's, it's British and French new wave. I did have one theory, but it probably doesn't stand up. There's a few different bits that are all obviously on location. The bowling alley, the death at the swimming pool at the beginning of the film. And there's something else later on that had that odd stark look, and I'm wondering is if... It casino? It might well have been... I'm just wondering if those places were too much of a pain to light properly for colour. You know the story about Lindsay Anderson's If. The reason some of it's in black and white is they were shooting scenes in a chapel because location stained glass windows everywhere. They didn't really have the time budget constraints to light the place properly for colour. It was going to be much too difficult. So they shot that scene in black and white. They're looking at the rushes. And at one point, Lindsay Anderson goes, oh, God, I love black and white. And then starts talking about other scenes that they can shoot in colour, but some scenes will look better in black and white. 
It's almost like halfway through he's regretting making a colour film. So I'm wondering if that's a consideration. And then on top of all this, you've got the silliness that runs all the way through it. Well, I, I said before, I said I think it was this film, and I, I quite enjoyed this film, but it took this film for me to realise that I don't really like Robert Morley. I just find him, he, he was a bit too, I mean, he's always been a buffoon, I guess, bumbling buffoon or whatever. His performance just irritated me. I mean, Hastings, which ostensibly is the character he's playing, which, and obviously there's a Hastings in the source material, uh, although I don't think he was in the ABC Murders, on which this is based, but Hastings is meant to be quite a pompous, priggish kind of character, but he wasn't. Tyler, are you an expert on Agatha Christie and Poirot? Uh, uh, I, no, I wouldn't say an expert, but I've read most of them. Brilliant. All yours. Right, I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me put it this way. The source material was completely dispensed with. I wouldn't say it was even loosely based, really, apart from the basic idea, which is kill four to kill one. Yeah. And to obviously follow a, a sequence. So people, alphabetical surnames, uh, someone called AA, someone called BB, CC, DD, and so on. Other than that, I mean, I won't go into the original, the ABC murders in terms of what the plot is, but let me just put it this way. The ABC murders, it's a setup. Someone is a patsy in the ABC murders. It's completely different to this. But other than that, I mean, the ending was very convoluted. Uh, I think I just about understand the ending. It was very sort of labyrinthine in terms of what I want to know is why they didn't just kind of stick a bit closer to the original story, because I think, I think it's a good story and they could have done. Do you think this is possibly a fear that the audience will be too familiar with the original text and so they felt the need to have a bit of a twist in the tale? Oh, go cheers yourself. What? Oh, sorry, sorry, but... <laughs> At the time we are recording this, the Dad's Army movie has not come out yet. But I did the other day read an article about why this movie absolutely had to have Elizabeth Mannering as an on-screen character. And it's that kind of That's reasoning. not the same thing at all. It's a slippery slope. It's dangerous. It's what results in things like, or oh, whistle and I'll come to you for BBC4, just having the name and the whistle and then going off in entirely different directions. I'm not accusing you of having this mindset, Gary, but it's that kind of excuse I can imagine where somebody involved in the making, and during the making of a documentary, when they're talking about how much they respect the original source material, but also it sucks and now it's being done properly. <laughs> Well, obviously, everybody was too familiar with the original story, so we had to change absolutely everything about it. No, I, I absolutely refute this outrageous suggestion. There's any similarity in my argument there at all. And simply, it's that they... No, actually, maybe you do have a point. I think, I, I, think, I think the book, and I won't go on about it any more than this, but the book is very serious. I mean, it's a, it's a strong plot. I mean, Christie was always great in terms of plot, but not very deep. And it races along, but it's it's quite bleak. It's quite dark. And I think if they'd probably if they'd followed the book too closely or at all, <laughs> then there wouldn't have been the opportunities for the comedy. That's what I meant. There you go. Yeah, yeah. But just quickly going back to, and because we need to get on to Dave Lodge, but quickly going back to Morley, uh, the scene that really got me kind of biting my fist in irritation, I suppose, not anger. Anger's too strong a word. Was you know the bit at the at the docks when he's in the boot of the car and he gets his foot stuck, and a drunken woman <laughs> goes over and gets in with him, and she's with some sailor or docker, and then she says good night to him and, and lowers the bonnet down on her and Morley. I mean, obviously it's farcical, but Morley's whole performance in that just made me think, oh, 
go away. Okay, who's the worst Hastings? Is it Morley or is it Jonathan Cecil? Because I'm sure everything you say about Morley being a buffoon. Morley. Really? Okay, interesting. Yeah. Well, then, this is another thing. Since when do car boots, trunks, have bits of cord hanging dangling <laughs> inside? I, I didn't question that because I know that things were weird in the 60s. They didn't operate the way you always expected them to. But you're right, yes. It was useful having it there, wasn't it? In order to lower the trunk. It's a special feature that and, came with that model. You've got a boot that's big enough to have Robert Morley and another person <laughs> comfortably in that's there. That's was advertised. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do we think of Randall's Poirot? Because it's interesting how stupid he wasn't. They play up the pomposity of the character, but I was expecting a lot more stupidity. I'm kind of glad that didn't happen. Well, if that had happened, then it would have felt like a Clouseau ripoff then. I don't think that was necessarily going to bother them, being a Clouseau ripoff. His Poirot was a lot more energetic, a lot more sort of zippy, if you like, certainly than Suchet, who I think most people these days associate with Poirot. I wouldn't say he displayed any great flashes of brilliance, necessarily. Just came across as a competent kind of amateur. It's quite annoying, because I think Randall might have been able to do it dead straight. I'd be curious to know if he had any influence on the character not being that stupid. My knowledge of Randall is sort of post this film, really. How established was he as an actor? Just looking at Tony Randall's biography, I mean, he's, he's been established for around about, yeah, around about sort of 15 years by this point. And it seems that he's probably, he's, he's done a lot of television work. He's done a lot of things like General Electric Theatre and what have you. I wonder if he's perhaps one of those players who, for a while, he sort of threatened to be the constant supporting artist, you know, the sort of Norman Bard sort of figure or somebody along those lines who never actually gets that breakout part. Then, you know, they become the star. He's one of my earliest TV memories. And I don't know why, because I've I've watched it on YouTube subsequently. I remember him from an awful sitcom called Love, Sydney. Oh, but a groundbreaking sitcom. Was he playing... And I wouldn't have picked up on him when I was a kid, but was he playing an openly gay character then or something? Yes. Yeah. But I, I remember really liking it when I was about, I don't know what age it would have been, eight, seven, eight, maybe a bit older, and subsequently watched it. And it's saccharine, schmaltzy, obviously. Uh, and there's an annoying child in it as well, which doesn't help. But because of that, whenever I think of him, I don't think of the odd couple or anything like that. I just think of Love, Sydney, whenever I think of Tony Randall. Now, of course, I'll be thinking of Hercule Poirot. I've just checked. Um, this is 1965, so it's the year after The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau in which Tony Randall played seven different, well, actually eight different characters, because he's also in the audience. So he has form. Clearly somebody's decided, I'm assuming Dr. Lau was a hit. He, apparently he was not that proud of his performance in it. I don't know if it was the yellow face or something, but I remember seeing somebody talking about meeting him, and she said, uh, yeah, he spent most of the conversation looking at my cleavage, and then I mentioned how much I like Dr. Lau, and he just looked at me like I'd spat on his cupcake. <laughs> right, we have to look into this. Not right now, but we will look into this, and we'll report back. Tony Randall appears in an episode of Happy Days called Not With My Sister You Don't, from 1974, <laughs> and he is playing... Werewolf in movie, brackets, uncredited. 
<laughs> no. No, that's what it says. I'm reading it off IMDb. So there we go. We'll look into that. We'll get hold of that. We'll report back. But generally, I thought this was a quite stylish, enjoyably silly film of a very 60s type. It hasn't quite overbalanced. If it had been made a couple of years later, I think it would be a bit too busy laughing at its own jokes. What did you think of the cameo with Margaret Rutherford and Stringer Davis? Obviously a nod to the Marvel franchise. And never mind Marvel Comics in the 21st century. This was the Marple Cinematic Universe. <laughs> they just needed Tommy and Tuppence and... Uh... Yes. Okay, right. Who's playing Tommy and Tuppence in that <laughs> universe where Christie's detectives are a bit more odd? <laughs> Tommy would need to be kind of a granite-jawed younger... I don't know, because the, the detectives are goofier, though. I mean, Miss Marple is more dotty and obsessed with crime fiction, so... We need somebody with actually maybe slightly less dignity. Warren Mitchell? (laughs) (laughs) Warren Mitchell just doing it ever so slightly camp. Because I've seen him in this episode of Sergeant Cork where he plays an extremely effeminate tailor and you can tell he's really enjoying (laughs) over-delivering his lines. Tuppence, Tuppence, who's got the Tuppence? Uh... (laughs) I don't know, Pat Coombs? (laughs) We need some cheap CGI software. Oh, what's and, her name from the Carry-Ons? You know that she's in, like, Cabin. As, as Mac- yes! As yes, there you go. There you go. While we're Mitchell and Esme Cannon. <laughs> Have I ever mentioned that episode of Rosemary and Time where they portray a parallel cinematic history? <laughs> there is a Rosemary and Time. God knows why I was watching it, but there is a Rosemary and Time. The incidents all take place in a house that was used by a British film studio. And while they're trying to investigate, there are these two, if you forgive the word, geeky guys who are enthusiasts and they're looking at all the different, trying to recognise the different locations. And they talk about, oh, this is uh, where Dennis Price did his deductions in Sherlock Holmes and the Spider Lady. A Christmas Carol, that's the window where... Wilfred Bramble leaned out through the half crown and said, here's half a crown, go put your hands on the last turkey in the shop. <laughs> it's like, who has written this? What? I'm sure there are a couple of others where they mentioned sort of mildly plausible British films that never existed in the 50s and 60s. And what, So you were watching this by accident? Well, I think maybe after the first one of these references, it's like, I'm going to have to keep an eye on this. Or was it, was it not that there was a, an actor who used to be in Callum that was in it or something like that? Is that, is that one of you? Uh, no, this would have been before I'd started watching Callum. We've not discussed Dave Lodge. Well, I'd like to think that, because uh, he's now working for the Metropolitan Police, he obviously very skilled. Nothing sticks to him over the handling. It was out of his jurisdiction, the end of the... Uh, Richard Basehart case, so it's none of his problem. So he is able to transfer to the Met and be a station sergeant, if you notice he has a crown above his chevrons. So he's a station sergeant, and I would like to think that as he came down from the northeast, out of earshot, all of the men at the station, including Windsor Davis, I forgot to mention Windsor Davis does pop up briefly as a constable, I think they all referred to him behind his back as Newcastle Brown. <laughs> He manages to lose the accent, doesn't he? Well, he never really had it when he was up there. So. I don't know what accent he just had. A, he had a very flat accent. They all did up in Newcastle in um, 
intimate stranger. I would have liked everybody to have sounded like whatever happened to like Lance. Just really full on. Everybody sounds like Tim Healy. Yes. To the point where it's largely unintelligible. Tim Healy in, in, in Heartburn Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> I have an alternate proposition. Uh, because this is the 1950s, terrible southeastern bicycles, Richard Bessart is American. His English geography is not going to be that good. They only like drive about five miles out of London, northeast, and just assume that wherever they are is Newcastle. Oh, it's not Newcastle, it's Newbury. Oh. <laughs> oh, it's Newcastle underline. Yeah. <laughs> Did you notice it took his wife? Because his wife got home at four o'clock in the morning. Now, she'd seen him entering the pub at, what was it, early evening? And then drove home. So what, what are we talking? Nine? No. What would that be? Nine hours to get from Newcastle to London back in, back then? <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to that, Dave Lodge, when uh, when Robert Morley walks into the station, sort of looks up from his, whatever it is, his, his ledger or whatever. And does Robert Morley drop his card in his cup of tea? And Dave Lodge sort of fishes it out with a with an air of kind of repressed irritation. But he does that very well in this, I think. Yeah, he's half asleep. It's it's interesting. A little something like that. It just gives colour. He could have just stood he there. He does that very well, though, Dave Lodge. That kind of sort of resigned air. You know, he's resigned to things being a bit rubbish or things going a bit wrong or whatever. Are there any pictures of him without the moustache? Not that I know of. It'd be completely different, wouldn't it, without the moustache? Oh, I've just found something out. Robin's Nest. Dave Lodge plays Mr. Tripp. Who was played in The Man About the House by uh, Leslie... Sands, yes. yes. There you From go. Bradford. Hey. Blimey, so it's all related, isn't it? It's all connected. I already mentioned Windsor Davis being in this, didn't I? Yes, yes, I did. Windsor Davis. Windsor Davis. Do you know what his brothers were called? What's that? He had a brother called Tudor and a brother called Stuart. Car. True fact, yeah. He played a hell of a lot of policemen. In fact, I think he's in a Callan as a member of Special Branch. He's in two different episodes of The Mind of Mr. J.G. Reader. I think once the uniform, once plain clothes. Uh, he's, I think, some sort of coast guard, maybe border patrol in Special Branch. He seemed to play a lot of uniforms before he became super famous. I've just accidentally given him a nickname as well, which he could have used on a business card. I was Googling there because you said, are there any photographs of David Lodge without his moustache? So I went looking and I thought, well, there's probably going to be more than one David Lodge in the world. So I'll put in David Lodge actor, but I got the words round the wrong way. And so I ended up typing in David Actor Lodge. <laughs> and that could have been how he was known. Who knows? <laughs> the, could have been the top of his CV. David brackets actor, close brackets Lodge. <laughs> one thing I'll say about the alphabet murders that it's made in Britain, but it's obviously made by an American studio. It's got a reasonably high budget. Robert Morley's towel does not fall off. <laughs> There's a bit where God. he runs into the middle of the street wearing nothing but a towel, and you're waiting for the discretion shot where we see his feet, and then we see the towel drop around his ankles, and it never comes. And for that, we should all be thankful. Yeah, things like that. It's things like that that just, uh, I just thought, no, Robert Morley, no, no, no. Reference to towel reminds me of Ian Lavender's towel in Carry On Behind, which changes colour from one scene to the next. And of course, Carry On Behind, who's the landlord of the pub, who's sold Peter Butterworth the dodgy land? It's David Lodge. 
You see, we, we honestly, we need to go back to that sitcom map of the universe and apply this to the Jaffa Cakes world because everybody is connected in some can I, way. Can I, just before we crack on, because obviously I think we'll have to return to this and we'll have to have three more, have another Dave Lodge in uniform special. Very quickly, I was just looking at other films in which he appeared as a policeman. There's Bloodbath at the House of Death, which I think is probably a bit too popular for us to cover. But there was another couple of films called, there was one called Eyewitness, from 1970, which had uh, Peter Vaughan and Lionel Jeffries. And there was one called Go to Blazers from 1962, which was like a crime caper. And, he pl- and Dave Lodge plays a sergeant. And that stars Robert Morley. I can sort of um, bite my tongue. And, and if, if we can do this again one day, then, you know, look at Go to Blazers, Eyewitness. And there was a film called Nobody Ordered Love, which was a horror film from the early 70s. And it starred Ingrid Pitt. I was looking at IMDb and it's believed lost. So if we could track that down, I don't think that'll happen. But... Uh, no, I think that there's a good 17, 18 films in which Dave Lodge appears in uniform as a policeman. I think my, one of my favourite films, actually, is the um, League of Gentlemen film, 1960. Ah, we need to do that. I know you've seen this series. You've got it on DVD. Lanny Grayson. got Dave Lodge as a police inspector. Yeah. That sounds likely, yes. And also as a labour exchange clerk. Not so likely, yeah. And, of course, bless this house, he appears as Slasher McGurk. <laughs> Who I'm presuming is not a policeman. He was in, um, oh no, at Selwyn Froggett. Yeah, and he's playing one of the Froggets, apparently. And in the, in the pilot. The Railway Children, I think. I, I seem to remember him. He Was he the band leader in the Railway Children? With uh, Ponsnay or something. He was wearing glasses. Never actually seen the Railway Children. Isn't that outrageous? I say it every time anybody mentions the Railway Children. The thing people don't really pick up on about the Railway Children is that Ian Cuthbertson's character is actually guilty. Because if he was innocent, he wouldn't be being played by Ian Cuthbertson, would he? <laughs> Son of Campbell. Yeah. <laughs> I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> but, but doesn't your heart melt at that platform scene when the, the smoke clears and he's standing there on the platform and Jenny Agatha sees him? That's brings a lump to your throat. It doesn't. Don't. I, I don't know. I just wanted to run. <laughs> the other way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> on the smoke to clear, and yeah, I do want to dub over uh, one of his brake bumpers from Charles Endler Squire so that this, the smoke clears and goes, I'm definitely back. <laughs> See me, I'm back. There's nothing that she can that's, do. That's a series for us to do, Charles Endler Squire, but we have to do all of Budgie first. So is he also Charles Endler in Supergram? And if not, why not? No, no, I, I would not like to think that. Charlie Endel was reduced to that. I think that there's definitely a relationship. They're definitely like cousins or second cousins. Ah, right. Okay, I see. No, I can't remember what go for a take was, but that's Reg Farley. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, thanks. I've got this theme to go for a take stuck in my head. Sh- sh- is this a film that I should see? Because I've never seen this. What do you mean you've never seen Of course you've seen it. I haven't. I've never seen Go For A you Take. live and breathe it, surely. It's exactly your kind of thing. <laughs> really? Hang on, let me have it's, a look at the cast Well, list. what did we say about Intimate Stranger? Oh, God, what are we going to make a movie about now? We've used up... I know. Let's just run around a film studio, and then you can see the edges of the sets and the bare walls, and it doesn't matter. Everybody's in this. Hang on a minute. This is directed by Graham's... No. No, not no. Hang on, no. Forget that. It's not directed by Graham Stark. That's an off film. It's the people who like this also like. They also like the magnificent Seven Deadly Sins. No, but okay. So Rich Varney's in it. And Norman Rossington and Blimey Jack Hay, Bob Todd, Aubrey Morris, <laughs> John Clive. Right, I'm getting this. I'm getting this. I'm downloading this right now. I will have seen this by the end of this podcast. 
So all this takes us to Mr. Horatio Nibbles 1971, which we actually watched once before for our abandoned look at the Children's Film Foundation when we were doing Sitcom Club Recess. There was supposed to be a show about the Children's Film Foundation, and in the end we listened back and we were we were sneering too much. We were getting a bit too clip show. I know that the mission statement of this podcast is and the Sitcom Club is is to celebrate the largely sort of forgotten in a non-ironic fashion. You don't slag off, basically, do you? It's not meant to be sort of postmodern, tongue-in-cheek kind of deconstructions of things. And I admire that. That's one of the things I like about this. I was waiting for a but. Oh, no, no, <laughs> but, no, but, but, guys, if you want to rip into okay, Mr. Horatio Nibbles. <laughs> you want a but of the three that we watched. Mr. Horatio Nibbles was the one where, you know, when you're watching something and you keep checking the, <laughs> checking how much time's gone gone by, checking how much there's left of it. So I found it a little bit ponderous. Tyler, can you settle, it's not an argument, but this is a difference of opinion. Right, so as Tilt says, we did attempt to record a show about Children's Film Foundation. During the research for that recording, we were watching Horatio Nibbles for the first time. I got this bee in my bonnet. And until didn't agree with me on this, and I would like... I'm not, not trying to influence you. I don't want to steer you in one direction or another, although there clearly is one direction which is correct, which is my argument. But you see early on, where herself, she's seen Horatio for the first time, right? And then her mum comes in, and she's got this picture of orange squash and these glasses on the tray. Right, what is the point of the picture? That picture is a completely superfluous item. That is screaming middle-class household to me. Because you just put the orange squash in the glasses, you, you fill it up with the water, dilute the taste, all that kind of thing. You don't need the picture. The picture is extra washing mm-hmm. up. It's extra but what work. happens? It's not necessary. What happens once you've had your glass of... of... Oh, that was Ocho's argument. I'm it, saying it allows you, you just, to you give ha- yourself a smaller dose, really. You can tip out a little bit and you, it doesn't feel quite as wasteful. I, I, I know there really should be no qualitative difference between leaving a pitcher standing and leaving a glass standing but leaving a glass standing it just feels wrong look they're playing cricket a game which makes absolutely no sense but looks nice (laughs) so it fits in with that whole world sometimes you just you don't do the rational thing you do the poetic thing cricket doesn't make any sense cricket's got perfectly valid rules cricket doesn't have rules it has laws Admittedly, the pitch that they were playing on was a little bit small, so the chances of them hitting a six, I mean, that would just meant that they'd lost the ball. The ball, the wandering ball, went all over the place. It attracted some comment. (laughs) (laughs) Very little, really. No, I would like to see the the complete Sky Sports team. (laughs) You know, Ian Botham and David Gower and David Lloyd. I'd like to see them actually analyse those throws uh, with the technology they've got now. I'd love to see what Hawkeye would make of the that. Mother, the mother, the mother s- who was sitting watching it, what she should have done was looked, shaken her head, looked at her glass, sniffed it, shaken her head again, and got up and staggered off. But it was all very sort of, like you say, all very sort of, yes, there was a bit of a reaction, but not much. It was just this ball sort of defying the laws of gravity. It's a bit the same reaction that you'd give if you saw the lights flicker for a second. You'd like... Yeah. You know, but that's it. I think it was deserving of more of a response. Going with your commentary idea... I. We have the idea that there's an actual proper cricket match going on and they have a professional commentary team on television and the ball does that. I would like if one of the team goes, guys, I've just hang on, I've just got an idea. I really do love rabbits. Yep. <laughs> it's okay, guys. It's invisible rabbit. How many times have we been caught out like that? Uh, 
Now, that does actually bring me on to one point that I think is worth stating here. We are arguing the case that basically Dave Lodge is the same police officer in all these films. Yeah? So, I think that the fact that he was lied to in Intimate Stranger, and that for a time he did actually believe Evelyn's story, which turned out not to be the case, I, I think that that has hardened him, and that's why he won't close his eyes and count to five and believe. I think it's just working with PC Goofy Face. Fred Evans. I thought at first, for a moment, did you think this? When when you first saw Fred Evans, I thought it was, um, what's his name? Lance Percival. Yes, he does. He does look a bit like him. The other person I thought it might have been was Gordon Gostello, but it wasn't him. I'm just trying to think, have I ever seen Fred Evans in anything else? He was completely new to me. I'd never seen his face before. And And the gamekeeper bothered me. Hang on a minute, your version had a... Right, this is interesting, because we, we watched it on YouTube, and our version had chunks missing. Did you have the gamekeeper getting his backside burnt? No, our version didn't. And it just so happened that I had a copy on a hard drive that I could dig out, because I knew something had gone wrong. It was Freddie Jones. Magnificent Freddie Jones. Yeah, and I couldn't place him at first, because he's, he's in so many things, but I just couldn't place him. But he was being very, almost pantomime villainish, if you like. Uh, in terms of his performance. This whole movie was off. There are guns being waved about. There's the whole thing of going off with strangers is perfectly fine if they're rabbits. Mr Nibbles is not cute. No. It's a little bit too fashionable to look at something, and I know we did a thing about hauntology, but you have to know when you're identifying something that is genuinely creepy and something that we didn't question at the time. Animal quackers never bothered me as a child. Mr. Nibbles is frightening. His black, black eyes. The the shot where he tells the dog <laughs> to go away, and you've just got this shot. The camera is below, and he's just pointing this finger, and you can't see his eyes properly. But you can see the stitches at the back of his head, can't you? <laughs> when he turns yes, around. Yes, yes. <laughs> we do have this thing that the Children's Film Foundation films don't actually teach good moral lessons. Egghead's robot, which is it's fine to pick on a parky because he's an authority figure. Protagonist-centred morality, really. And it's okay to run off with any stranger in a rabbit costume. The policeman should have been a bit more suspicious. Maybe not necessarily a more innocent time, a less paranoid time. But even then, he should just go, Okay, bye, Mr. Rabbit. Take that girl wherever you want. Did you like the bit of business with the bird's nest? No. No. <laughs> I felt sorry for David Lodge all through this. <laughs> you know the best person in this whole film? The little boy. Does she have a rabbit? Yes, and turns kids. Do you have an invisible rabbit? I like that boy. And I wish he was in more films saying more famous lines. I'm thinking snakes on this plane. The mother was awful. She was acting like she was being forced to at gunpoint. She looked like she didn't want to be there. She just was very stilted. A Bernard Horsfall, as the father thought he was with the RSC, he was playing it dead straight. This is before Enemy at the Door, but he's playing it pretty much the same. This is before The Changes as well. I don't know if you've ever seen The Changes. That's a children's BBC fantasy serial. And there is a shot, very similar to a shot in Horatio Nibbles, where he's just like lying back on the couch, relaxed, smoking his pipe, and then he goes crazy and smashes up the TV. Okay. 
if Mr. Horatio, if he, using his invisibility, had smashed up the TV <laughs> in the household, would that put you off him even more? Or would you have thought, you yeah, know, well played? It wouldn't have surprised me. Actually, you know what? The, the Children's Film Foundation, it always comes down to the same lesson. It's okay to cheat at cricket. <laughs> as long as you're playing against Tom, Derek and Bob, who are the most annoying children. No, Egghead, he's, he cheats at cricket. Sammy Super T-shirt, he cheats at every sport there is going. Cheating at sport is fine as long as it's you. The other kids can just suck it. Actually, no, one thing I do like is they didn't go for the sort of plausible deniability was there a rabbit. Spoilers, people, but in the end, everybody gets to see Mr. Nibbles. It is actually all Mr. Nibbles' fault, isn't it? Because he could have just revealed himself at any point, couldn't he? So why do you just do that then? Okay, I, I do have another theory, because you know the whole thing is is that he only gets involved in the girl's life because she says she loves rabbits. And he apparently just wanders up and down. He wanders into people's gardens, keeping an ear out for people saying nice things about rabbits. And then he decides to latch onto them. And at the end, she gets a pet rabbit given to her by Mr. Nibbles. I think that's one of his kids. <laughs> so he's palming off on her. Yes. <laughs> How did they do the special effects? I was quite impressed by the cushion you know when he was invisible and sat down yes yeah that was nice and you saw the imprint of his you just need a little piece of cotton pushed through that has enough of a knot in it that it'll take some of the material at the top with it so it wasn't early um special CGI or anything like that no no industrial light and magic priced themselves out of <laughs> the market for this one did you notice that the uh, roy barraclough was one of the draymen yes uncredited but no there was one bit in nibbles which I found unsettling. Okay, so when they're all having their little tea party, and I think, Ocho, I think you mentioned about how quickly nibbles can eat sandwiches. Like yes. that. Yeah, the entire sandwich <laughs> just vanishes from the plate. They've been so careful having things floating in the air as he picks them, but it's like, they go to the special effects, so can we have like a sandwich float up in the air and then a bite vanish? No, mate. No. <laughs> okay, just do jump cuts, the sandwiches vanish. Uh, so we just take it that he just like puts his entire face onto the sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> but no, the cricket boy, when he gets annoyed at all these goings on, he throws a spoonful of blancmange. Here's the thing, the blancmange lands on the wall behind Nibbles' head, <laughs> and then when Nibbles appears, he's got some on his face. So are we to believe that some of that blancmange actually went straight for his skull? Uh, is Nibbles part liquid creature like that where if he wanted to he could just like burst through the, all the walls in the household and scare the hell out of everybody yeah he could be envisioned and not envisioned but also he can be like a shapeshifter you see, we or could have something. done this differently we could have watched harvey mr horatio nibbles and donnie darko <laughs> at the same time and i still think mr horatio nibbles would have been the most disturbing of the three Dave Lodge in this, I think that he's got a lot to put up with, with wrong lands as he's... I think we need to all settle in our minds that this was not the end of a proud career in policing. No, as he stalked off of that bird's nest on his head. Yeah, let's just pretend that something nice happened afterwards and there's got to be another Children's Film Foundation film with David Lodge playing a police... Anything we can have him, like, maybe playing... Plain clothes, we can just say that he, he... But he's got to have the surname Brown. Right, okay, well, I can't see any more Children's Film Foundation, but I can see that post-Kinnibbles, he was a policeman in an episode of Father, Dear Father. 
He was police inspector in Carry On Girls. And then, this fits your theory because maybe he had a slight change in career because he frequently appears as Inspector Bungler in the ATV Carry On Laughing series. So yeah, maybe he maybe he left the force and became Inspector Gadget. And of course, we shouldn't forget, of course, as well, that he was actually in three episodes of Dixon of Doc Green. One of them, at least one, was a Detective Chief Superintendent. Then he became Slasher McGurk and everything. Uh, yeah. And he was in an episode of It Ain't Half Hot Mum with Windsor Davis, obviously. Um, uh, yes, yes, yes. Around that time, it was Return of the Pink Panther as well, mm-hmm. which he had a fairly prominent role. But yeah, his his career really in the 70s was, was a variety of TV series or low-budget films. Tyler, was there anything else notable about Dave Lodge that you wanted to mention? I just think he, he was a obviously a very capable, reliable jobbing actor. I think the only sort of role that was never a starring actor, of course, but the role that I would always associate him with first, I suppose, would be in Two Way Stretch, where he was, I suppose, third on the bill, maybe fourth on the bill with Sellers and Cribbins and uh, Lionel Jeffries, which I think was a, is a fantastic film. But again, he doesn't it's really, it's Sellers and Cribbins and Jeffries, whereas Dave Lodge is kind of there, kind of making up the numbers, I suppose. At some point, we're going to have to bite the bullet and do a podcast about one film. So if you have any suggestions of films in that type, two-way well, stretch, crooks anonymous, anything tape. in that kind of world, or maybe we could do the 1960 League of Gentlemen. I'm just going to say, I'd love to do the League of Gentlemen. That would be fantastic. Because I have things to say about that. It has things to say about the British film industry, changes in British society, changes of respect. Maybe I might even use the phrase post suies at some point. You never know. It's got Roger Livesey ah, in it. It's got everybody. So Tyler, thank you very much indeed. Thank for you. Us. I enjoyed it. And thank you for suggesting this topic, because this, of course this all came out of Twitter. And if you want to suggest anything for ourselves for a future podcast, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at Jaffas for Proust. And of course you can hear all the previous Jaffa Cakes podcasts at podnose.com and our alter ego of the sitcom club is still going and we'll be back with a new sitcom club at the end of this month so keep an eye out for that you'll find out about that at sitcomclub.com and at the sitcom club on twitter so in the meantime tyler tilt goodbye goodbye this has been jaffa cakes for lodge <laughs>